Personalized medicine is clearly one of the most popular topics in healthcare today, but what is it going to take to equip physicians, laboratories, and hospital systems with the capabilities to make sequencing and genomic medicine available to everyone? Our guest is Dr. Rakesh Nagarajan of Perian DX, who's on a mission to democratize next-generation sequencing. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Dr. Rakesh Nagarajan is founder and executive chairman of Perian DX. Rakesh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Now, we've been hearing so much about you uh, in the news. You've had a lot of success so far at Perian DX in terms of building the company and raising money. But could you just tell us, and especially for folks who may not know, what exactly does uh, Perian DX do? Yeah, delighted to do so. So Perian DX is a company that supports clinical NGS, uh, molecular diagnostics. Perian DX uh, was founded in May of 14, spun out of uh, Washington University in St. Louis, where Um, The software and services were developed in a collaboration of the departments of pathology and immunology and genetics. Our really, uh, our reason for being is to democratize uh, NGS clinically, nationally, and globally for both uh, somatic and germline indications and to provide uh, supportive services to enable molecular diagnostic laboratories and health systems to practice precision medicine. So what was it in your particular background that led you to start the company and what did you kind of see as maybe challenges or unmet needs that we were facing at that time? Uh, I'm, you know, personally trained as a a physician scientist, so formal training in molecular biology. My PhD is in molecular neuroscience and uh, transcription factors. My kind of side training, if you will, on my own um, was, uh, you know, really loved uh, computer science and uh, uh, self-trained hacker at heart. Always tried to bring computer science into medicine and research uh, throughout my academic career and my professional, early in my professional career, and was finally able to do so, um, you know, very effectively um, late in my PhD when the first microarrays came out and I was able to develop microarray analysis software at the time. My career really launched as a uh, informatician at Washington University where I, you know, decided to hang up the stethoscope and the pipette and, uh, you know, pick up the computer keyboard and mouse and support clinical and translational research of very large uh, uh, genomic and other omic data sets integrated with medical record data, biospecimen data, and trial data. And so my experience there at WashU, um, you know, over the first uh, eight years or so, uh, was in supporting very broad um, clinical and translational research programs in the Cancer Center, the Clinical and Translational Science Award, or the CTSA um, at Washington University and others. It's within that context then that the Departments of Pathology and Immunology and Genetics, when they launched their clinical NGS program, asked my group to you know, develop the informatics for uh, this clinical product. And for the first time, my group had a chance to develop and, and support software in a CLIA CAP accredited environment. And we were delighted to do so because we could impact patients very directly through that model. I remember when I first met you, I was I was very excited because you were really kind of the first informatician that I had met. And I knew there was such a need for this skill set in this space when we were faced with this large tsunami of sequencing data. So just tell us, what is where did the name Perian DX come from? Perian DX really uh, comes from uh, Greek mythology and the Perian Springs where the muses bathed and uh, the muses were the foundation for science and math and uh, the arts. And uh, the Perian Springs were also made famous by a Jonathan Pope poem 
uh, you know, drink deeply from the Perian Springs. Uh, a little learning is a dangerous thing. So kind of the you know, source of knowledge, if you will, and the DX for diagnostics. Sounds like a lot of thought, thought went into that, and I can certainly appreciate that. Now, you said that you want to democratize sequencing and make it available locally and globally. So how exactly are you doing this, and who are the customers that you're serving? You know, we're helping customers internalize next-generation sequencing for clinical use in a CAP-accredited or CLEAR-certified environment running their own laboratory-derived tests. So these are molecular diagnostic laboratories, virtually every market segment. So we started with academic medical centers, uh, NCI-designated cancer centers. We now have customers that are pediatric hospitals, large health systems with precision medicine programs, commercial laboratories, reference laboratories are all customers of ours, um, regional path laboratories. So these are all folks who are closer to the patient, if you will, in that democratization of clinical NGS where we imagine hundreds, if not uh, low thousands of laboratories nationally and tens of thousands of laboratories globally offering um, NGS sequencing clinically, both for somatic and germline um, indications when, you know, genomics is operating at scale in medicine. I think we all agree that this is going to play a very large role in medicine, and it's probably not something you can just adopt overnight. So what are some of the challenges that these groups might be facing in, in establishing an NGS program? Great question. You know, I think that the problems or, or challenges that folks face, um, you know, at the very outset may be creating the cost justification for setting up such a program, the capital expenditures that would be needed, the IT and informatics infrastructure that's needed, um, the technical laboratory personnel needed, the medical professionals needed to review, perform their analysis and sign out, um, germline side, you know, the genetic counselors that may be needed, things of that nature. So there's that aspect of, you know, how do I set this up? And what is it I'm setting up? You know, am I only setting up a laboratory or do I have a precision medicine program that interfaces with treating physicians to help them interpret first order, then interpret the results um, so that they can act on the report with their patients? Once you actually then commit to establishing the program and internalizing the sequencing component, you know, the first things you sort of run into are how do you validate an NGS assay? So, you know, some of our very first customers, you know, were uh, learning how to do that. And we ourselves, obviously, at Washington University learned how to do that. Uh, We're very early in the, in, you know, essentially inventing assay validation for NGS in the somatic uh, space, as well as in the germline space. And so that learning, you know, everyone doesn't need to do over and over again. So one of the services that Perian offers is a an assay validation service where we help um, customers in their assay validation approach their um, strategy, the selection of samples with, you know, a variety of variant types across genes and across diagnoses, especially in cancer, things of that nature, in order to calculate things like specificity, sensitivity, um, accuracy, reproducibility, reliability, and the like. Once an assay is then validated, customers go live, and challenges they face, you know, let's say post-go live are, uh, you know, hey, I've got a complicated case here, or I have an interesting variant here that I'm not sure really is, you know, in the sample, and how do I, you know, review that in the context of read quality and alignment quality, uh, variant allele frequency, and things of that nature. So there's really kind of 
review and kind of the confidence of final interpretation. And obviously, interpretation itself is a very daunting thing. Molecular diagnostics historically has been a single biomarker or a single variant, uh, you know, interpretation. Where now even very small panels of a dozen genes or, or you know, less than fifty genes can give you dozens of variants um, after filtering and hundreds of variants before filtering. Let alone panels that are getting to you know several hundred genes to five, six hundred genes. Those are going to give you thousands of variants that you have to sort and filter through. I was saying when I first met you, I was excited. And I, at the time, this is maybe four or five years ago, the challenge to me seemed to be, how do we handle all this data from the informatics piece, you know, the analytical component, uh, so to speak. But then the challenge kind of morphed into, well, gee, we didn't even know we would find so many variants. And what is the significance of all of these variants? Absolutely. So the in the early days, you're exactly right. Um, as folks started adopting NGS, many of the assays were very custom built. But, you know, right from library design, uh, picking the right uh, library capture methodology, uh, whether that's hybrid capture, Amplicon, uh, depending, and, and different technology for, technologies for amplification. So what you really focused on in informatics was, well, how do I create a bio, bioinformatics pipeline that's analytically validated in concert with the library prep and the sequencer and the multiplexing that I'm doing on the sample types that I'm sequencing? i.e. secondary analysis was the focus, alignment and variant calling, in order to ensure that variants you're calling are, quote, really there, i.e. the assay itself, in a methods-based fashion across the entire panel, has high specificity and sensitivity. You know, as the market has matured over the past, I would say, you know, seven or eight years, there are now mature tools, um, either uh, complete pipelines or individual tools that come together very nicely, especially for vendor-based assays, i.e. assay vendors themselves are providing secondary analysis pipelines that are close to clinical grade with some minor tweaking and validating, um, you know, then can be used in an LDT environment after analytical validation. You know, informaticians like myself need not, um, uh, in, in all cases and in most cases, build such pipelines from scratch. They come with assay vendors, uh, you know, as, as part of the offering that the assay vendor has because they realize that the customer has to be able to specifically and sensitively call variants. And so you see then the focus shift to, well, how do I now interpret these variants, which is a very important concept. And obviously, when we started with CGW, the, the workflow um, and I'm sorry, that's the, our, our tool, the Clinical Genomics Workspace. That tool enabled uh, the workflow that included secondary analysis, followed by then um, annotation and interpretation. And so that solution um, we're still using today in a very flexible model, wherein the secondary analysis is performed either externally um, or is wrapped inside the solution but provided by the vendor uh, the focus that we have is around the knowledge base and the interpretive aspect of the solution. Now, one thing that struck me being somewhat involved with this in the early days, there was a large concern over sensitivity, particularly in the liquid biopsy space where we, were, we wanted to be sure we didn't miss anything. Has that become less of an issue and have those fears been allayed somewhat? Absolutely. No, I think that uh, in the solid tissue space for small uh, sequence variants, so SNVs and small indels, you know, I think that we've put that to rest fairly effectively. 
um, you know, getting down to, um, you know, 2 to 5% vernal allele frequency for both of those variant types and, and with very high specificity. That's really very doable today. For copy number variants and fusions, you know, with appropriate cutoffs on amplification or, uh, or read count of, you know, fusion reads, there's very high specificity and sensitivity as well. In the uh, circulating tumor uh, space, getting down to 0.1% allele frequency for small sequence variants is, um, you, you know, now very doable. You know, I wouldn't say it's as uh, easy as for tissue samples, but uh, definitely very doable. I think that that art, um, I don't believe, has moved into other variant types beyond uh, sequence variants yet. And then the other thing that struck me is just how vastly we were under-equipped in terms of variant interpretation. You mentioned earlier that we went from testing just a few discrete variants. You know, for example, you might do a KRAS, codon 12, codon 13, or something like that. We moved from that to testing for all possible variants. I believe there wasn't even a variant classification system for solid tumors, uh, somatic mutations, until 2017. So in some sense, were we just flying blindly for a while there, and are we getting better? Yeah, you know, it's, it's very interesting. You know, I think those of us who got, er- got in early essentially created our own classification system or scheme. And you can see that uh, at Washington University, we, you know, initially had eight classifications and reduced that to five classifications. You can see the uh, MSK tiering system and others that kind of predated the AMP-CAP-ASCO classification system that came out in 17. That's one of the reasons, uh, you know, the system that I built, um, I saw this, you know, people wanted to keep changing the tiering system. You know, it's got a very flexible tiering capability on a per assay basis because AMP-CAP-ASCO tiering in somatic cancer is different than ACMG uh, classifications in germline, and, and well, it should be. You know, with regard to somatic cancer, you know, I think in general, the tiering systems that many of the sites adopted were focused on both the strength of evidence and the overall actionability. So folks have really started to hone in on what is the strength of evidence um, that I have, and that, you know, higher that strength of evidence, drug labels, guidelines, um, you know, larger studies versus smaller studies, you know, is, is kind of one axis. And the other axis is really, um, you know, is this a, a therapeutic prognostic or a diagnostic assertion or, or recommendation I'm making? And so, you know, many of the tiering systems kind of melded, some, you know, those concepts together uh, um, over, over the years. CAPAMP and ASCO really brought that together quite nicely in, in, the, in, the, in the first version. With our ability to test for pretty much all of the variants, uh, have you been seeing a shift towards panels and testing more and more genes? And if so, are bigger panels better? Yeah, um, you know, we definitely have been seeing a shift. Uh, so several shifts. Um, one is vendor-based panels versus custom panels. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of laboratories that started with custom panels are finding it very hard to let's say, keep up with the latest um, because, you know, you're constantly adding genes and therefore probes or primers to your panel, having to uh, revalidate that panel. And the cost is, you know, very prohibitive in trying to do that versus adopting vendor panels where um, you might not get exactly what you're looking for, but you're getting uh, just about everything you need without the base cost of designing assays from scratch. 
The other trend we're seeing is it's called comprehensive genomic profiling or, quote, you know, greater than 50 gene type of panels. You know, these panel sizes range from um, 80 or 90 genes to 120, 170 genes to uh, north of 500 genes in, in some cases. You know, that trend is, you know, really being driven by the number of clinical trials that are, you know, going after uh, more genes, uh, as well as more complex biomarkers like MSI and, and TMB. You know, those are, those are definitely drivers of the larger gene panels. Now, I see on your website you have something called Clinical Knowledge Sharing Network. Now, can you tell us a little bit about what this is and why it's so important? Oh, sure. Our sharing network is a very unique aspect of our solution wherein our customers opt into sharing several components of their clinical database, if you will. The first component is really what we call medical interpretations and classifications. So as medical directors review and sign out their cases, variants that they've classified, as well as the interpretations they've written are shared in the context of the tumor type of that patient, such that if another customer has that same variant, whether in the same tumor type or not, information of that other prior report from that site or another site are available during review and sign out, i.e., you can see what your peers said about that same variant um, in your patient's tumor context or another tumor context. You can read uh, the interpretation as well as the classification. You can see how often a variant has been classified at a certain tier across the entire network within your patient's tumor type as well as other tumor types. So very powerful information for you to make your own decisions on how you'd interpret that variant in your patient's context. And it's one piece of information that molecular pathologists and medical geneticists can use to finalize the report. The second aspect uh, is really de-identified um, and aggregated patient variant data tied to diagnoses that are shared. So you can see variant frequencies by tumor type as well as classifications by tumor type. And that information is useful for molecular pathologists and geneticists as they finalize the report. So is it fair to say that variant interpretation, despite how far we've come in terms of informatics and analysis, is still somewhat of a subjective science? Uh, number one, um, there's a vast amount of information that is available, and that information is changing um, every day. So systems like ours, where we uh, have dedicated curators um, from source data, such as FDA-approved labels, practice guidelines like the NCCN and ASCO, as well as European guidelines and European drug labels and trials are all sources that can be used to finalize a molecular diagnostic report in that those sources uh, will tier variants and, um, and therefore then provide the underlying evidence to create interpretations. The subjectivity is really in the practice of medicine that you know, exists in, in every field, as you can imagine. It's in the interplay of variants, perhaps, that are found together. It's also in the integration of the variants that are found in, this, in the particular patient's clinical context, i.e., what is their prior treatment as well as current comorbidities, current drugs, that they're on in order to make final therapeutic decisions in concert with that patient. So I think you've got to bring all of that together in order to manage the patient. There's no magic informatics system that'll tell you what to do for that patient, obviously. So have we reached a point where this information is 
going to be fed back in real time to improve our ability to classify variants based on, for example, patients we've seen this week? Is it going to improve what we're able to do next week? No, great question. So that's really one of the promises of our sharing network that we have, uh, wherein drug label, for example, that's approved this week is made available, you know, within our knowledge base. Let's say patient X this week has a, the biomarker that matches that drug label. Well, that source information is then provided to the molecular pathologist um, who's first seeing that variant in our system. He or she then reviews that information, chooses to then write the interpretation uh, linking to that drug label and put and signs out the medical report. As soon as they do that, then that classification and that interpretation ascribed to that organization are immediately available in our system so that, let's say, the next day that same variant appears in a, at another organization. Well, not only is now the underlying FDA um, source curation is available um, because our curators at Perian provided that, but that medical interpretation also is from that medical director. So it is truly near real-time, you know, improvement of the knowledge base um, to better inform the practice of medicine. That can be very powerful and very exciting. And I think that's kind of, in a sense, what many people envision the future is going to look like. Now, we hear about the term personalized medicine nearly every day. And one of our previous guests on the podcast said that ultimately the term precision medicine or personalized medicine is just going to be replaced with the term medicine. And are we close to making that a reality? You know, um, I think it's a journey, you know, and everything is a journey. I certainly think we are, you know, making rapid advances toward that reality. 10 years span uh, from the time that we start at WashU to today, you know, we talked about dozens of drugs available to hundreds of drugs available today in targeted therapeutics and, you know, the whole field of immunotherapy growing up and appearing um, over the past five to six years is amazing. It's amazing progress for medicine as a whole and for uh, uh, patients individually. Um, you know, the, the, you know, I don't want to um, oversell, however, how much is, is known um, and how much is still yet to be discovered. Um, and I think, you know, it, it is through the rapid phase of discovery, um, drug development, um, you know, real-world evidence studies trying to accelerate drug development, um, as well as informatic systems like ours, um, where the knowledge is kept up with, um, and you can actually learn from that interpretation that we will, you know, truly get to um, much more um, uh, broad use of, quote, personalized medicine or the practice of medicine um, where, you know, virtually every encounter uh, is informed by uh, genomics. Well, Rakesh Nagarajan, how can people learn more about you and Perian DX? Perian has webinars monthly. We uh, obviously have our website, PerianDX.com. I'm also uh, available at uh, uh, on LinkedIn, Rakesh Nagarajan, and I'm t on, on Twitter, Rakesh at PeeringDX.com. would be delighted to hear from uh, folks who are interested in clinical NGS and molecular diagnostics, uh, precision medicine. Love to hear, you know, their, their experiences and, uh, you know, their initiatives to launch such programs at their organizations. Our guest has been Dr. Rakesh Nagarajan of DX. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. Mm -hmm.